Lord, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for the price that was paid. Lord, we ask as we go to your word, the Lord, you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would minister to every heart that is here. Lord, everyone's here this morning by divine appointment, not by accident or by chance. Lord, we ask you to move in a mighty and a powerful way. You do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Again, if you're new, I know Bill mentioned it. I hope you feel welcome here. Here at Calvary Chapel, we don't have church membership. You show up, you're a part of the family. That's the way it works. So whether you like it or not, we just adopted you this morning. So God bless you. All right. Well, this morning, uh, sunrise service, we looked at Mark 16 and the actual uh, resurrection story itself and coming to the empty, empty tomb. And we will pick up, if you're new to Calvary, we'll go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. We'll be, we'll be back in James chapter 4, the second half, and in James chapter 5 next Sunday. This morning we are going to look at some aspects of the resurrection, but as I was praying about it this week, what God put on my heart was to look at some of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ's resurrection and in Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Because there's over 425 places in the Old Testament where it speaks about the Messiah who is to come. And as we know, Jesus Christ fulfilled them all. Now you and I, we couldn't determine where we, were be, where we would be born, though the Bible says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We couldn't determine who our parents would be, though it says the Messiah would be of the tribe of Judah, and he would be the son of David, and he'd be of the root of Jesse. And you know what? Jesus, of course, is descendants of them all. We could not determine, we do not determine how people would receive us, but the Bible tells us that his own would receive him not, that his own brothers would not receive him, that his own family would shy away from our Lord. We come today because all that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the greatest of which is the cross of Calvary, and that three days later he rose from the dead. Because amen, it's Friday, but Sunday has come, amen? And we serve a risen and living Savior. He's our Lord, our God, our Savior, our King. We sit here on a Sunday morning uh, remembering the resurrection. But the reason we're here on Sundays all the time is in remembrance of the resurrection of our Savior. Praise God that we serve a living God. All four of the Gospels, I said this this morning down at the beach, all four of the Gospels do not end their biographies or stories of someone's life, the life of our Savior, the good news of Jesus Christ. And if they were written about any other man, they would have ended much sooner. Because biographies end with a person's death. But in all four Gospels, they continue on to tell us of the resurrection of our Savior. If he had not risen, he would be a martyr who suffered. But because, if there was, and again, if there was only Friday... If Sunday had not come, the work of the cross would not be, though finished in Christ, is fulfilled in the resurrection. He said it's finished, but the reason we can trust his word that it is finished is that three days later he rose from the dead. His resurrection proves his deity, proves that he's God, proves that his word can be trusted, proves that, again, besides him, there is no other. Jesus came, he knew hunger, pain, heartache, and temptation, and yet he never sinned. And he who knew no sin became sin in our place. Again, it was finished at Calvary. You know what, guys? It should be a great relief to you this morning. 
Maybe you're not someone who goes to church a lot. We're really glad you're here and praise God for that. But I want you to know something. You don't come to church to earn God's favor. And we don't try to earn it by being really good throughout the week. Because if we do, well, guess what? Not working out so well. Amen? We all blow. Who blew it this week? Raise your hand. Okay, there you go. But see, coming here did not score us any brownie points. The reason that we can come and we can have joy is that Jesus Christ finished it all. He paid the price. He's risen from the dead and he's coming back. And his Holy Spirit lives inside of us right now. And we have the joy of the Spirit now and the promise of heaven to come. And guys, we can rest in that. And we can have peace in that. And it ought to bring a great amount of joy to our hearts. Amen? Because praise God that we serve a risen and living Savior. He proved himself to be God by raising from the dead. You know, none can dispute that Jesus was born. Very few, even historians, would dispute that Jesus lived. Hard to do that. What's the date today? March 23rd. March 23rd what? 2008. 2008 years since what? Since Jesus Christ. Every time someone writes a check, they're testifying to the existence of Jesus Christ. Amen? Hey, right, every time you write the date, 2008 years A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, very few would doubt that he came to earth. But what's amazing about Jesus Christ who came to earth is he has had the greatest impact of any man who ever lived. He never held public office. He never acquired a great, any great wealth or position. He never traveled more than a couple hundred miles from his place of birth, but no one has had the impact on human history that he has had. Very few question his birth, but very few, very few actually question that he was crucified. Some will try to debate and say it didn't really happen, but vast majority of even the most secular of writers and historians would testify to the fact that Jesus indeed did die on a cross. Josephus, the secular historian, writes of his crucifixion in great detail. His betrayal, his trial, his scourging, his crucifixion. Again, not only does the word of God, and that's enough for you and I, but even the world would say, yes, he was crucified. So they don't doubt his existence. They don't doubt that he was crucified. But here's where they struggle. Did he raise from the dead? Did he raise from the dead? Guys, let me make it very clear. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you're not a Christian. Oh, Pastor Dave, what's up with that? How come I, can't I just believe in the cross? Guys, if he only died on the cross and he is not risen, as Paul said, we are the most pitiable of people. But praise God, we are not to be pitied. We are walking in the grace of God because he indeed is risen. Guys, those, you know, I've been in the tomb. He's not there. It's empty. That's the God that we serve, and we can rejoice in the fact that we serve a risen and living Savior. After he rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 10 different, on 10 different occasions from a few people to up to 500 at one time. The resurrection is one of the most provable facts in all of human history. He, he appeared to them all. Well, and then you go into the tomb, it's not there. And then to me, what's one of the most radical proofs is that the guys who hid and cursed and ran away and were afraid after the resurrection spoke with boldness and were willing to die rather than reject the fact that Jesus is risen. How in the world is that possible? Because Jesus is risen and the spirit of the living God was dwelling inside of them. If they had said, you just deny that he's risen and we'll let you go. How can I deny the fact that he has risen? How would they all be so bound together? Because they're bound by the truth 
and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All the apostles, with the exception of John, were martyred. They tried to kill John. They boiled him in oil and they didn't die, so they put him out on an island somewhere. And he wrote the, the Re- book of Revelation while he was there. You know what? God is risen. His Son is risen. And we need to live like we believe it. And if we live like we believe it, well, it'll transform the way we look at everything around us. Christianity is not one of many acceptable religions. Contrary to what some people might think, it's not a political party. But it is the intimate fellowship with the true and living God through the redeeming blood of our Lord, Savior, God, and King upon the cross of Calvary. Jesus alone is God. Jesus alone is perfect. Jesus alone can redeem us. Jesus alone can forgive. What in the world have we done for God's Son in light of everything that He has done for us this morning? So let me say this. I want to take you now to the Old Testament, to a couple of passages. And I never do this, so forgive me if it's going to mess you up a little bit. But we're going to look at two different texts this morning. Because as I was saying, well, which chapter should I look at to point to Jesus being God in the Old Testament? To point to the crucifixion being prophesied in the Old Testament? There are so many, we couldn't possibly even begin to touch on them all. Psalm 22, for those of you who are note takers, we're not going there, just look there later. But Psalm 22 has so many references to who Jesus is. And just some of the prophecies, just so you know, in case you haven't thought about this. The the Bible prophesies he'd be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin of the tribe of Judah, root of Jesse, house of David. He'd be called the Nazarene, that at his birth it would trigger a massacre of the infant boys. He would come out of Egypt. He would heal the deaf and the blind. He would preach to the poor. He would be despised and rejected by men. He'd be hated without cause. He'd be rejected without by, by rulers. He'd be rejected by his own brothers. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that the money that he was betrayed for would be used to buy a potter's field that his own disciples would scatter and that's only a few of 400 guys we can rest assured that our god is god that jesus christ is our savior so as i began to pray about it psalm 22 boy there's so much in there that speaks about about the lord you know in psalm 22 these these are just some of the verses my god my god why have thou forsaken me who said that Jesus upon the cross. It says in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Hundreds of years before crucifixion existed, Psalm 22 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Speaking of the Messiah, what did they do to Jesus on the cross? They shook, they, it says they shoot out their lip, they shake their head saying, he trusted the Lord, let him rescue him. It says they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. I wanted to read all of Psalm 53, but I won't. But it says there, and I want you to go there later. If you ever meet a Jewish person, someone who believes in the Old Testament, and they're struggling with the truth of the Messiah, take them to Isaiah 53, and if you can read this chapter and not see Jesus, you're not paying attention. Amen? It says in Isaiah 53, and again, I'd like to read the whole thing, but let me just read a part of it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. As a sheep led, led before its shear, he was silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made a grave for him with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he was done so with violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord 
to bruise him. He was put to grief, and we, he makes us, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and to the pleasure of the Lord shall be upon his hand, for he shall bear our iniquities. It says, by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you didn't know any better, you'd think that was the New Testament. Amen? I have a friend who got saved, a Jewish man who got saved. We, we worked together in Southern California. He was on a business trip. He was struggling with a drug problem, an alcohol problem. And he went out and got out of control. And he came back to his room and he was just kind of in despair over what a mess he had made of his life and he reached in and got his bible out but being a jewish man he only believed in the old testament and he flipped it open and he just started reading at random he read isaiah 53 and he thought he had accidentally got into the new testament because he saw jesus so clearly that he got down on his knees when he realized it was in the old testament he gave his life to jesus christ he never struggled with drugs and alcohol again god blessed his marriage he's being used mightily by god because he read this chapter the Word of God. I'd like to share it all with you. But here's the point. We're going to look at two. And I want you to turn for, with me first to Numbers 21. I don't ever do this, so I apologize. I'm going to make you race around your Bible. I hate doing that. I like you to open up the Bible and just leave it one place and stay there. And... But I titled the message, It All Points to Jesus. And in Numbers 21, we're going to look at just five verses. And we're looking at the bronze serpent, beginning in verse 4. He who knew no sin became sin for us. To set the stage, what is happening? They're traveling through the wilderness. They've already not gone into the land of promise like God had called them to. And as they would not go in, they're wandering because of their disobedience. And now, as they were prone to do, they begin to murmur against God. Look at it says in verse 4. It says, They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged along the way. God had been dropping manna out of the sky to feed them. The pillar of fire was leading them along the way. The tabernacle, God's glory was in their presence. And yet, because things were taking a little longer than they thought, they became discouraged. Can anybody relate to that? You know, Lord, I, I love you, I'm walking with you, I'm serving you, but this is just taking a little longer than I expected. You know, I should have been married and had four kids by now. What's up with that? You know, I should have been promoted three times. Lord, I should be, what is, what? Lord, come on now. Get, get up to speed. Catch up with me here. Guys, God's always right on time, amen? But they began to murmur. They were murmuring because, in a sense, it's a lack of faith. It's saying that we know better than God. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God. And against Moses, saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Calling what God gives you worthless, not a good thing to do. Worthless bread, manna, coming down from heaven. You know, it's described later as like a pastry that has a, an oil in it. So it's, you know, I have, you know, man, you know, can you imagine having, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts that were healthy? You know, so this man is coming down from heaven. It's the perfect food. It's satisfying their needs. But just like we all can be, that we want to look back to the world. Egypt is a type of the world. We want to go back to the world. We want to go back to the bondage. They were in bondage in Egypt. We're going to talk about that in a moment. 
They wanted to go back to bondage, back to the world, back to sin, back to all of that. And they began to murmur against God. And notice what happens. And here we're going to see a very clear picture of our Savior as we move through the text. Because see, the manna, the very thing that, that sustained life was the thing they were murmuring against. They were complaining instead of trusting. The Bible says that everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This manna was a gift from heaven. Instead of thanking God for his gift, they murmured, we're sick of it. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. What? We complain about the bread, we get snakes? What's up with that? Guys, our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. And he suffers long, but he won't suffer always. And as they murmured and cried out and mocked him and spoke out against him, he sent snakes into the camp. Well, man, that doesn't sound very nice. What's up with that? How come they got snakes? I mean, it doesn't seem like it was that big a deal. Let's keep reading. And it said, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So they complained against God, and they died. That's exactly right. I want to think about that next time, amen? <laughs> Should be praising God, not murmuring. Thank you, Lord. Amen? When we put things, that, when we have an eternal perspective, we can thank Him, amen? When we have an eternal perspective, we're not going to get like that. So what happens, these snakes come into the camp, they begin to bite the people, and the people start dropping dead from the venom. These poisonous snakes are killing them. But notice what happens. God will allow judgment to come that repentance may follow. Look at verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Here's the greatest thing about judgment coming, about consequences for sinful behavior. It gets us to look up. Amen? It went from murmuring to the realization, guys, we will not see our need for a Savior until we realize that we are sinners. If you didn't know it already, let me make it clear. Every one of you in here, sinner. Amen? Me too. Chief of sinners, Paul said of himself. We are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, but sometimes it's not until the judgment comes or the consequences come that we get to the end of ourselves and we're forced to look up. And then the judgment came, they realized they had brought it upon themselves, and they cried out and said, we have sinned. They recognized that their complaint against God and Moses was sin. In the past, Moses interceded for them. This time, they came to him and begged him to intercede on their behalf again. Please intercede for us. Pray for us. Since consequences do indeed open our eyes and our need to our need for repentance. So we confess our sin. The Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive us. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Moses is a type in the Old Testament of the Lord as the deliverer who brought them out of bondage, the one who intercedes between sinful man and holy God. Jesus does that for us today. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. What in the world is this? So people are dying by being bitten by snakes, so he tells Moses to take a snake and put it on a pole and carry it around, and when people look at the snake, they'll be healed. That almost sounds like voodoo or something, doesn't it? Look at the snake? What is that about? 
I don't understand that at all. Where is that coming from? And let me explain to you. We'll see in a moment exactly what the point is. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was. If the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Understand this. In the Bible, bronze or brass is always a representation of God's righteous judgment. Those who would look to the serpent would live. The serpent upon a pole. A serpent that was being lifted up. If they did not look up, they would not be redeemed. Guys, if we don't look up, we won't be redeemed. But why a snake on a pole? Well, Jesus explains it in John chapter 3 when speaking to the most religious man of the day, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him by night. He's the pope of the day, if you will, one of the most religious men, and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he says, well, can I crawl back a second time into my mother's womb? What are you talking about? How can I be born again? He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you must be born again. You can't be good enough. You can't be godly enough. You can't, you know, try hard enough. You can't do enough good deeds to earn salvation. We all need Jesus. But what does the serpent on the pole represent? Later on, as he's continuing his conversation with Nicodemus, after he tells him to be born again, he says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word lifted up is a word that speaks of the crucifixion. The pole is a representation of the cross. And all of us are infected with sin. And we're all going to die, just like those bit by the serpent. Who was it that helped introduce sin into humanity? It was a what? Serpent who came to Eve. And here we see this picture of sin. And we've all been infected with that bite of sin. And now because of it, we're all headed to hell, separated from God. He said, hell on Easter Sunday with all the visitors. You know what, guys? It's better to hear about it than to face it, amen? He died so we wouldn't have to go there. But here's the point. Why a serpent? Because that serpent is a type and a picture of sin. The very creature that was causing people to die the serpent is a picture of sin, so why is the serpent on a pole? It says this in 2 Corinthians 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The serpent was lifted up on a pole so that all could see. Jesus was crucified publicly. All saw that he did was being crucified. All who hear the gospel can look to him and be saved. Each had to look for himself. Nobody can look for you. Can you imagine what it must have sounded like in the camp when those who had been healed, what do you think they were telling everyone else? They looked up and all of a sudden they were healed. The rest of the people that were on the ground writhing in pain, what would you think they were saying? Look up! Look up and be healed. What, I'm, what I would say to you this morning is look up and be healed. Look up to the cross of Calvary. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That's what Jesus said. This is such a clear picture of the cross that he who knew no sin became sin for us. What a picture of what Jesus would do hundreds of years later to redeem sinful man. But we cannot be healed unless we look up. 
We can't take the venom out ourselves. We've all been bitten by the sting, the very sting of sin. You know, it's interesting. Later on, in Hezekiah's day, they turned that brass serpent into an idol, and people started bringing offerings to it and worshiping it. Isn't it amazing how that can happen? Guys, the cross of Calvary should remind us of Christ, but the cross doesn't. The cross, the wooden cross itself, doesn't save us. Amen? People walk around kissing crosses and hanging a cross over their bed for protection. Guys, the place of his crucifixion does not protect us. The fact that he was crucified and he died for us redeems us. Amen? We need not turn the cross of Calvary into an idol. We should not be worshiping a building or a piece of furniture or a statue. Jesus is in our lives. He's the one that brings us joy. He's the one that redeemed us. Those who looked at the bronze serpent, those who would look up, would be the ones who'd be forgiven for their sin and redeemed and be headed to heaven. This morning, we need to look up. If you haven't done it before, you need to look up. All right, second text for this morning and the last one. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. So we see this in the Old Testament and Again, you can imagine as you read through that text, what in the world does it mean? And Jesus goes back to explain it as he's talking to Nicodemus, a guy who would know the Old Testament very well. He lets him know that bronze serpent was a picture of the cross. Now we're going to look at the children of Israel who were in bondage in Egypt. And they've been in bondage for some 400 years. And as they are there, it, they're going to be delivered. But it's going to take something very radical to deliver them. Because at this point, there's already been many plagues. Plagues of frogs and lice and blood into water. And none of those things would get Pharaoh to let the people go. And some of us would say, well, you know, Pharaoh was hard-hearted. Yes, he was. But you know what? God was going to bring about their deliverance from bondage through the ultimate picture of the cross in the Old Testament. And again, we should see very clearly. Let's begin in verse 1. Of Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. The Passover would change the entire calendar. Once Passover took place, this Passover that brought them out of bondage in Egypt, across the Red Sea, a picture of water baptism in my mind, which some of you took part in this morning, and then headed to the land of promise, the Jordan River would be on the other side of the wilderness as you would travel, growing in your relationship with God, crossing over the Jordan, a picture of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But here we see them in bondage in Egypt, and the date would change. Everything from that day forward would be based on Passover. Just like today, everything that happens every day is based on when Jesus came to earth. The calendar was changed at Passover, and the calendar was changed when Jesus came. Very clear link between the two of them. It's interesting, in Daniel, it says that the Antichrist is going to try to change the calendar. He's going to hate God so much, he's going to hate the whole B.C.A.D. thing. And he's going to try to wipe it out. Good news is, we'll be in heaven. Verse 3, it says, Speak to all the congregation of of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, 
Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now, they bring this lamb into their house. Later we would see that a lamb would cover the minimum 10 people up to 20 at the most. So if you had five people in your family, you and the person next door to you could go in together, buy one lamb. They brought the lamb in on the 10th day of the month. They inspected the lamb for four days to make sure that the lamb was perfect and without blemish. Then after having that inspection of the lamb, and imagine how attached to the lamb they would become in four days. Can you imagine if you brought a lamb in your house, how your kids would feel after an hour? Imagine if you kept that lamb for four days. And again, I believe that there needed to be an attachment to understand the heavy price of sin. But we see that the lamb was then to be killed at twilight. Now, what in the world does this have to do with our Savior? First of all, when Jesus began his public ministry, he came down to John the Baptist when John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And when he saw Jesus, he looked up and he said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They were bringing the Lamb in on the 10th day of the first month. Guess what day that is? The 10th day of the first month we would know today as Palm Sunday. Jesus came into Jerusalem and he was inspected, if you will, for four days. They questioned him, they tested him, and for four days... It was very clear to us, not so clear to them, unfortunately, but he is perfect, holy Lamb of God. And it says there on the 14th day at twilight, they were to kill the Lamb. When did Jesus die? He died. Four days later, he died on Friday. And when was it? It was at twilight. Darkness hit. Again, this is such a clear picture of Jesus. Now, what's also interesting, the Bible says that a day is to a thousand years as a thousand years is to, the day, to a day. The world began 4,000 B.C., and four, years, four days, 4,000 years later, Jesus Christ crucified. Guys, I'm just telling you, the Bible rocks, and if you take a close look at it, it's all about Jesus. Every, every chapter, every picture, now we're not done yet. Now what's interesting, the Pharisees tested Jesus, they tried to trip him up, they could find no flaw, he was tried by the Romans, they were unable to find him guilty, he's the perfect lamb. I want you to notice the progression, in verse 3 it says take a lamb, then it says take the lamb, then it says take your lamb. Guys, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, there's only one, and salvation can only come when he becomes your lamb. There's only one lamb, and only when he becomes your lamb, your sacrifice, the one who interceded on your behalf, only then can you be saved. Not belief that there is a lamb, that's not enough. Belief that someone down the street has a lamb is not enough. There's only one lamb, and we must put our faith in him. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and his name is Jesus Christ. It says, no, it says, you shall keep it until the 14th day. It is singular, but there were thousands of lambs. Why? Because all of them were pointing to Jesus Christ. So, 
what was this Passover all about? Now look what it says they must do with this lamb. Verse 7. So they kill the lamb, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, it wasn't enough to bring the lamb into the house. It wasn't enough to inspect the lamb for four days. It wasn't even enough to take and, and kill the lamb, slitting the lamb's throat and spilling its blood. You can say, I brought the lamb into my house. I found the lamb to be perfect. The blood was shed. But for, there to, for the angel of death to pass over, the blood must be applied. Guys, we can believe that there is a God. We can believe that Jesus Christ is God. We can say that he is perfect. We can even believe he died on the cross. It's not enough to believe it. We must apply what he has done to our own lives. We must accept him as Lord and Savior and God and King. We must get off the throne and put him there. And when they would put the blood at Passover, it was in the perfect shape of the cross. The very spaces, very places where our Savior would bleed from upon Calvary. There was blood on the top as he bled from his head. There was blood at both sides as he bled from his hands. And they would leave a basin of blood down at the bottom where he would bleed from his feet. And all the blood from his body would drip into. Guys, this is a very clear picture of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He alone can pay the price. He alone can deliver sinful man. Then it says in verse 8, Then you shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Jesus would later say, Unless you eat of my body, you can have no part of me. He's not talking about cannibalism. What he's talking about is going deeper than knowing about Jesus' death upon the cross, but repenting of our sin and assimilating him into our bodies. Taking the Lord into us. When you were born again, the Holy Spirit went from being with you to being in you. You were once dead in your trespass and sin. You you repented. The Spirit went from being here to being here. We must feed upon him. Guys, in a few moments, we're going to take communion. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We're remembering his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. This was written some thousand plus years before Jesus was crucified. Some thousand plus years before crucifixion existed and all of this was a clear picture because here's what happens look at it says do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water but roasted in fire its head its legs and its entrails here's the point that had to be roasted that's the only way you could cook something without breaking its bones fire is a picture of judgment and our savior faced the judgment and the wrath of god in our place and then it says there in verse, at the end of verse 8, he talked about with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Unleavened bread is what we use in communion. Unleavened means leaven is a picture of sin. Jesus is without sin. And they take the bread and it's striped and it's pierced. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Bitter herbs was a reminder of their bondage that they had been delivered from. Guys, every time we come to the table and remember the cross of Calvary, we ought to remember what God has delivered us from. Remember who we were before we knew him and who we would be if we didn't know him today. Amen? And be thankful and drive us to a place 
of worship. And it says in verse 10, you shall, not let no, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Again, it was a completed process. You came, you took the sacrifice, you put the blood, you ate it until it was gone, and it was finished. Why? Because that's how salvation is. It's not something that goes on week by week and year by year, and you try to attain it, and you try to grow toward it, and you try to get better. I talk to people all the time that say, you know, Pastor Dave, I'm ready. I want to give my life to God, but i got to get some stuff straightened out first. That's like saying, you know, before I, you know, take a shower, you know, before I take a bath, i got to, you know, get a washcloth somewhere and get myself a little cleaned up to get ready for my bath. Guys, jump in the bath. Don't try to make yourself better. You can't do it. Amen? That's the lie of the enemy. You're not good enough to come to God. And you know what you need to say when Satan tells you that? You're right. Amen. I'm not. That's why I need him. Amen? But we see here, it's all consumed. It's completely finished. Verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Notice the, the sense of urgency. Today is the day of salvation. You take it with haste. You eat it right now. You don't think about it. Well, maybe I'll eat it next week. Guess what? The angel of death was coming. Maybe I'll put the blood out later on. People sometimes say, you know what? I'll give my life to Jesus when I'm older. I want to have some fun now. Guys, there's nothing more fun than walking with Jesus. No, you know, I don't regret one minute being a Christian. Praise God. I can't imagine living life without him. And then he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt, verse 12, on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Ultimately, it's only the Lord who can execute judgment. Only Jesus can bring righteous judgment upon hardened, unrepentant heart of sinful man. They rejected his merciful attempts to get their attention over and over again. Guys, it's Jesus Christ we must be standing right with. So then finally it says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be as a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So the angel of death would come down, and if the blood was on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over, that's why it's called Passover, and death would not come to that household. Because of the blood, they would escape righteous judgment. Because of the blood, you and I escape righteous judgment. Amen? He took the judgment upon himself that you and I need not face it. The blood must be applied, as I said before. They could have the basin of blood down by the post. It's not enough. They could have had the lamb in their house and said, I really don't want to do that. I'm just going to leave the lamb here, let the chips fall where they may. Well, guess what? When the angel of death came, the firstborn in every household would die. And then he said to them, they should celebrate this. Well, guess what? Jews still to this day celebrate Passover. And when you look at the Passover feast, and I want to close by looking at this, and then we'll go to our time of communion. When you look at the Passover feast, it is absolutely amazing to me how Jesus is all over it, 
and yet they don't see it. Now, Jesus, when he came, replaced the Lord's Supper with communion. So for us, we replaced Passover with Lord's Supper. So for us, what we're about to take is the equivalent of what they're being reminded to take here. Take that Passover every year as a remembrance of the deliverance from the angel of death, the deliverance of righteous judgment through the blood of the Lamb in the shape of the cross. Again, a picture of what the Lord did for us. But what's interesting is the Jews continue to do it, but what's we, we no longer look forward to the promised Lamb of God. As they did it, they were looking forward to the Lamb who came. As we do it, we look back to the cross of Calvary. The Jewish Passover today, it's also called the Seder. Between the, this is one of the most amazing parts of it to me. Between the first and second cup of blessing, they take out three pieces of matzah, all the same size, all the same shape, all wrapped together. They remove the second piece of matzah out of the middle, and they break it in half. They then wrap it up and hide it. The children run, and when the children find it, they all rejoice that they have found it. Now, you haven't got this yet. Let me explain it to you. Three pieces of the same element, all of them striped and pierced. They pull the middle piece out. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit. They pull out the middle piece. They break it. Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and was broken for you. They didn't wrap it in linen. When Jesus went into the tomb, he was wrapped in linen. And when they found that he had risen, they rejoiced greatly. And this part of the Seder is called the Afikomen. It's the only part that's in Hebrew. And you know what it means? I came. What do you say to that? How is that not Jesus Christ? Amen? Unbelievable. Remember that the next time you talk to one of your Jewish friends. Ask them about the Seder. Ask them to tell you what happens in a Seder. When they get to the Afi Komen, let them... Can we go through those details again? Tell me about that one more time. How does that work? Wrapped in linen. Man, I love it. The word of God rocks. Guys, we could go on and on and on and on and on and talk about Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who was broken for our sins. He has paid the price. It is finished. He is a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf right now. And guys, he's coming back. You know what, we need, we need to be rejoicing that the tomb is empty, that the linen cloth, we found it, he's not there anymore. Praise God that we serve a risen and living Savior. Next time someone tries to say to you, well, there are many paths to God. Well, there are many paths, but only one leads to heaven. And his name is Jesus Christ. Guys, in this politically correct society we live in today, it's real popular to say, well, it's good for you. It's, it's not good for you. If someone says, well, this is what's good for me, it's not good for you because it ends in hell. It's not good. And guys, we need to love people enough to be more concerned about telling the truth to them and love than being popular with them. Amen? 
We are not to be popular with the world, but faithful to God. I'm sharing this with you from the heart of your... I've been praying all week, knowing there would be people in this room that did not know the Lord. And I just want to beseech you on behalf of our Savior. He loves you. He died for you. Let today be the day of salvation. Don't leave here without Him. Amen? He is the answer to everything we see in Scripture. So it all points to Jesus. Some 400 plus messianic prophecies. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. In Numbers 21, the bronze serpent, he who knew no sin became sin for us. In Exodus 21, or 12, the Passover lamb, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Guys, Jesus did it all. All you have to do is accept it. He reaches out and says, I love you. I'd rather die than live without you. You are my treasured possession. I want to give you the free gift of salvation. Also, too, maybe you're here and you're like that prodigal son. You've walked away from the Lord, maybe for some time. You know what's great? I love the story of the prodigal son because when the prodigal son comes home, thinking, well, I'm eating pig slop, at least with my dad, I can be a slave there. But when he comes home, what does the father do? He kills the fatted calf. He puts a ring and a coat on his son. He embraces him and he says, welcome home. You know what? You can take a million steps away from God. It's truly only one step back. And the Lord would say, come on home. However long you've been away. Maybe you've been away for years and years and years. Come on home. You're here by divine appointment. The Lord loves you. So right now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to our time of communion. As we go to our time of communion, I'm going to have the pastor standing over here. If you want to, one, give your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And God's called us not to make converts, but disciples. We don't just want you to pray a prayer and feel good about your life. Guys, it's giving your life to Jesus Christ, and we want to help minister to you as you make the decision to do that. If that's your desire, we're going to have pastors over here to pray with you. The Bible tells us that communion is for those, Lord's Supper is for those who've already given their life to Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, it's not for you. Not that we're trying to keep you from anything. We would love for you to join us in it because it's it's done a remembrance of the cross of Calvary, of what's been done for us. Secondly, if you're here and maybe you've been away from the Lord for some time, a week, a month, a year, 10 years, Pastor's going to be up here, and I want you to just come forward. And you know what? Get your life right with the Lord. And then come and take communion. Now, the elements, I've already said it, but it's the bread, the body of Christ. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And then he's held up the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My encouragement to you, as the worship team is going to come up and play a few songs, just get the elements, go back and sit down, and just spend some time with the Lord. If you want to do it with a spouse or a family member, do that. But just spend some quiet time with Him. Just seek His face. Examine your own heart, looking back to the cross of Calvary. Look within at where you are spiritually, and look forward to the day when we will do this with Him in heaven. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come on up. And that would, again, the pastors will be up here and over here. And if you, just, if you want prayer, you want to get things right with God, you want to make sure you're going to heaven, I want, if that's you, I want you to come up and talk to one of them. Let them pray with you. Everyone else, come on up. Let's get the elements. Let's sit down and let's spend some time with the Lord and rejoice in what he has done and never take lightly the cross of Calvary. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we worship
your most holy name. And Lord, as we come to this time of the Lord's Supper, remembering the cross of Calvary, Lord, I do pray that we would look back to that greatest act of love in the history of all humankind. Lord, that you died that we might have eternal life. Lord, I pray also that as we look back, we'd also take the time to look within. Lord, to come before you, humbly and broken. Lord, to repent if necessary, to get things right with you. And then, Lord, also, as we contemplate and look back and look within, Lord, may we look forward and rejoice in the fact that, Lord, one day we will take this with you in heaven. Lord, I do pray if anybody is here, no doubt there are several, if not many, here who do not know you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, they would not be worried about what anybody else is thinking. But Lord, as your Holy Spirit is grabbing a hold of their hearts, may they respond in obedience. Lord, and come forward and just say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that your word says that when they do, that you promise to fill them with your spirit, to walk with them, to forgive them no matter what they've done. Lord, I pray for the prodigal sons and daughters, those who may have been away from the Lord for some time. Lord, I pray that this morning would be a time of no matter how many steps away they've taken, that they would take that step back. Lord, we just dedicate this entire time to you, that you would be glorified. Lord, that we would, in a sense, do business with you. We would come before you. We would truly be honest and open and broken before you. Lord, through this, may you be glorified. And Lord, may we be brought into your presence, Lord, in a deeper way. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.